So our scripture reading this evening is found in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 56. Now an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their hearts, took a child and had him stand by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you is the one who is greatest. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him, because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So uh, we come to this passage, and we've been talking through uh, the Gospel of Luke, and we're continuing on in our our uh, series in it. And and from the get go, from the beginning of this passage, there's there's almost if if it weren't so serious, there's almost a comical aspect to it, right? Uh, as we as we look there in verse forty six, it says, "Now an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest." And so here the disciples are arguing over which one of them is the best, who is the greatest, who should be the leader, almost like a bunch of, of middle school boys arguing over who's best at football or, or basketball or something like that. And I've said before that that oftentimes I think of when I'm reading the Bible, I almost think of it cinematically, like of of uh, how the conversations would have gone. And and it and and so I was thinking in my head about if if you know Peter were to sort of they're walking on the road and Jesus is up ahead of them, and then Peter kind of pulls James and John to the side and he says, "Hey, listen, guys, you know Jesus keeps on talking about the fact that one of these days soon he's he's going to be gone, and 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 when he's gone, who's going to lead this group, right? I mean, I mean we're the ones who he has sort of made his inner circle." We're the ones who he took up on the mountain. It should definitely be one of us. And, you know, of the three of us, I mean, I think I'm pretty much the obvious choice. And then John would say, well, whatever, Peter, man, I'm the, the disciple that Jesus loves, right? It should definitely be me. And then maybe Thomas overhears them and he says, the only reason he, you guys get taken everywhere is because he doesn't trust you out of his sight, right? Whenever we look in, in, in the scriptures, he's, he's always asking me the questions. I seem to be the, the most important one. And Andrew's like, yeah, but Thomas, you always get the questions wrong. I should be the leader. I was his first disciple. And then Judas says, well, uh, you know, he trusts me with the money. Uh, obviously, he he has the most uh, trust in me because because I get to handle the money. And then Thaddeus comes along. He's like, well, what about me, guys? And the rest of the disciples are like, nobody even knows who you are, Thaddeus. In 2,000 years, people are barely going to remember that you were even a disciple. Okay, and so so there, there's this argument that breaks out among which one of them is going to be the greatest. And here's the thing that I think this whole passage is about that idea of greatness. And I don't think at first we might say, oh, well, it would be, it's, it's illegitimate to try to seek greatness, but, but I don't think that's exactly right. Um, there, there's a sense in which we want to, to be great, uh, in the, in the kingdom of God. We want to be great, um, for the kingdom of God. Maybe, maybe a way to, to say it the opposite that, that makes, clarifies that is to say, 
you don't want to be a loser for the kingdom of God. You don't want to be a nothing for the kingdom of God, a lazy person for the kingdom of God. But the key to this passage is that Jesus is showing them that greatness in the kingdom uh, is has been turned upside down. Greatness in the kingdom is the opposite of what it might look like in terms of the way the world would usually work. And so what we see is three different little interactions that Jesus has and the disciples have with with typically with, with somebody who is outside of their group. And each one of them teaches a principle about what greatness looks like in terms of the kingdom. And then there's a passage right in the middle that sort of, uh, that, that draws our attention to a certain, um, idea, this idea of ascension. And I think that passage has, has some clarifying, uh, and, and focusing, um, uh, aspects, uh, for, for this passage. And so, so we're going to look at those three encounters and then we're going to kind of bring it all to a close talking about that idea of ascension. But the first encounter that we see is this, this part in verse uh, 47. So Jesus um, overhears um, the, the disciples talking, and he knows what they're thinking in their hearts. And it says that he took a child and had the child stand by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. So in, in the ancient world, um, both in, in Jewish and Roman society, there was a, there was a hierarchy. There was a pecking order in terms of society. Um, you could move up in, in that, that pecking order in that hierarchy, right? So it, so it maybe wasn't as, as striated as, as something like the Hindu caste system or something. Um, you could move up if you had, if you had brains or money or, or success in, in business or in, in military service. But usually the case was that you also needed a leg up. You needed somebody who was higher up than you to, to help you get to that next level. And so it was typical to find men of influence would have these groups of people around him, uh, an entourage, toadies, uh, if you want to be cynical, sycophants, right? Um, you would see this with with uh, Roman uh, people in, in power in Rome. You also see it in uh, with Jewish uh, people, particularly rabbis. Right? They would have this this group of of disciples that would follow them around all the time, and they would sort of flatter and suck up to these to these um, men as as they sat at their feet and learned from them, and 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 uh, tried to get their their connection with that person to be beneficial to themselves. So you, as you can probably guess, that's not too different from the way our world works today. Um, it's very similar in, in lots of ways to certainly to the business world. Uh, we certainly see, see that in various aspects of society in terms of people trying to climb the social ladder, right? Be in the right organizations, know the right people, get invited to the right events. You even saw that in seminary, um, to be honest, um, you know, I remember when I was in seminary, you would, you would see these professors walking down the hall and then, and then they would have these guys following behind them. Uh, these, these little groups of, of, of sort of seminary groupies, um, with different professors and, and guys would, you know, brag about, they'd say, Oh, well, you know, professor so-and-so wants me to be their TA uh, this year or doctor so-and-so invited me to this Bible study that he does specifically for a small group of students or this, this other pastor wants me to intern with them next semester. Uh, and, and, you know, on one level, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. 
um, the, these are men with a lot of wisdom, um, uh, and, and it's a great opportunity to learn and, uh, particularly for guys coming up in ministry, but there was always something about it that left a bad taste in my mouth, honestly, especially the guys who you could tell were really working for it. Um, the guys who were trying just a little too hard to get noticed. I feel like the disciples are like those people. They're looking for that leg up and here they are arguing over who's going to be the next leader. Who's going to be the next number one guy, um, for, for Jesus, um, either, either in among the disciples or even among the movement that, that Jesus is starting. But then Jesus takes this little child and he basically says, look guys, most of you wouldn't give this kid the time of day. And probably the reason for that is because this kid can't do anything for you. He can't help you uh, rise up the ladder. He can't help you ascend on these things. But then Jesus says, how you treat this child is how you are actually treating me. How you treat and how you treat me is how you are treating God. I remember a story that, that, uh, Pastor Greg at, at, uh, Mother Church, um, has told before, and he talks about being at a Southern Baptist convention, um, meeting, um, back in the late eighties or, or I guess it was actually the early nineties. And he had his children with him and, and they were just little kids at the time. And, and Greg and his kids were walking down a hallway and all of a sudden a door there on the side of the hallway opens up and out pour a number of, you know, sort of big name, high profile mover and shaker type people in the, in the Southern Baptist convention. And, and one of the men that came out of the doors was Adrian Rogers. And Adrian Rogers was a huge figure in the conservative resurgence, was a, was a pastor of a mega church in Memphis, uh, Bellevue Baptist church. Just a, just a big important guy um, in in terms of of Southern Baptist leadership, and and as these people piled out of this 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 room where they've been having you know sort of this this uh, this high profile meeting, Adrian Rogers was walking down the hall towards Greg, and then he stopped and he and he knelt down on one knee and he started talking to to Greg's two kids um, and basically saying, man, it's so encouraging to, to see young people here. You know, are you having a good time at the, the convention? You know, I know you love Jesus and, and just sort of said some encouraging words to them. And Greg made the comment that, that always stuck with him that, that Adrian, um, he wasn't too big to, to, uh, or too important to stop and, and, and talk to these children. Right. And that's the exact kind of uh, attitude that, that Jesus is talking about in this passage. You know, we see Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 25, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. The same sentiment is found in James chapter 2 when he's talking about favoritism. So James says, um, my brothers, hold your faith in, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ without showing favoritism. For suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring or dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes so that you say, sit here in the good place, and yet you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I think what we notice is that that what's really going on is that in a way it's about using people. It's about using people for our own uh, benefit, our own aggrandizement. Uh, that's a word. Uh, ask yourselves sometimes, I mean, why do I associate with the people that I associate with? Is it because, 
I'm trying to bless them in some way, or is it because I'm trying to get a blessing from them? I'm trying to use them for my own benefit. And that could be with friends or church members or business associates or acquaintances or whatever. That's one of the reasons why the Bible is always reminding us, again, to remember the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, the marginalized, the oppressed, the rejected. Because these are the people who are always forgotten because they can't really help us in any way. There's not any way that we can, uh, that their influence in our lives can, can lift us up, right? In fact, oftentimes, if we're honest, quite the opposite. Sometimes those people can be a burden in different ways or a liability socially, or sometimes even just maybe an annoyance. Oftentimes we look at our motives for, for these things and we're not acting out of friendship or compassion or mercy or certainly not love, but we're acting out of self-interest. And so that's something that I want us to pray about uh, as we go throughout and as, as we reflect on this passage. Ask God, how do I use people, God? Show me the ways in which I'm not acting out of, of love and kindness, but I'm actually acting out of self-interest when it comes to my relationships. And so that's one of these ideas of greatness is to say what greatness looks like in the kingdom is not uh, associating with people um, who will help move us up the ladder, but instead associating with people so that essentially we can pull them up the ladder, right? That we can do things to bless them. Um, that we can, that we can step down into their difficulties to help them up as opposed to trying to find people who can help us up. So that's the, the first principle that we kind of see. But then there's this second encounter that we see in verse 49. And so John says to Jesus, well, well, master, we saw some guys, uh, someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him from doing that because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So again, there, there is this encounter that they've had somewhere along the road. There was a guy um, who had apparently become a follower of Jesus at some point, but he's not one of the 12. In fact, he doesn't appear to have been part of, of that immediate group of followers, even Jesus' entourage at all. But obviously he is a legitimate believer because the things that he is doing are, are working. He is, it, the spirit is working through him and giving him power to, to cast out demons. And John at, at first seems to, to give the impression he's like, Hey, Jesus, we're trying to, to protect the integrity of your name and your ministry. We're trying to protect, uh, your work. Um, that's why I'm asking you uh, about this guy, but, but, but pretty, pretty quickly we can, we can guess that that's not the real issue. The real issue is not that, that the disciples are trying to protect the integrity and truth of the gospel ministry. What's really going on is that this man, um, is stepping on the disciples turf. The disciples are basically like, listen, we are the anointed ones. We're the disciples. We're the ones that Jesus handpicked. Um, we're not super excited about this guy going around and, and having success in in kingdom ministry if we're not involved in it. Not to mention, there's I'm sure a little bit of 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 jealousy on the fact that did you notice what the thing the specific thing that that uh, it zooms in on? It says this man was going around casting out demons in Jesus' name. And so immediately we remember just in the last passage that we studied, right? There's got to be a little bit of sting in that fact. 
because the very thing that the disciples were unable to do in the last passage, cast out demons, is the very thing that this guy seems to be um, having success in doing. The very thing that the disciples couldn't handle is the thing that this guy is doing. But Jesus says, do not hinder him, for the one who is not against you is for you. That is to say, Jesus is basically saying to John, listen, we're all on the same team here. Okay, and and I honestly, I, th- I think this is one of the biggest challenges in in, in uh, ministry, in, in maybe all the time, but certainly in in the current time that we're living in, that there there continues to be these turf wars with churches sometimes. You know, it it annoys me when people brag about their churches because that they present it in terms of isn't God awesome and look what He's doing, but but oftentimes you can see underneath that that what's really going on is. They're basically bragging about the fact that my church can beat up your church. And here's the deal. I get annoyed at my, those people and I get annoyed at myself because, because they're, you find these, a certain amount of jealousy that happens or envy is the better word that you find envy about the things that are going on in those churches. I mean, I wish my church did that or I wish we had one of those. And what can happen is it can make us critical about other churches because of our own insecurities about things. And so there are certainly other ministries in, in our county um, that are doing any number of good things. Um, and, you know, we may not agree with, with, with some of the theology in those churches or the practice or, or the style in some of those churches. And yet um, th- we know that the things that those churches are doing, they're, they're doing well. Um, they're reaching people for Christ. They're, they're discipling people in the kingdom. And so the point is, is that Jesus is saying, look, kingdom ministry uh, is not about you. It's not about you and your position and your prestige. It's not about your influence. It's not about you getting the credit for these things. Don't stop this guy from working because he is building a kingdom and so are you. He is doing kingdom work. And it doesn't all have to be about you. Those things don't have to happen just within the context of your church and your ministry. Now, again, if there's, if there are churches out there that are, that are not, um, acting in, in, in terms of, of, of gospel truth and, and, and biblical witness, then, then that's, we're not talking about those churches, right? There, there, there should be a certain level of, of clarity and criticism, um, for those things. But, but when a church is, is ministering in and is successful and ministering to to a group of people or in a certain way, um, and they are being faithful to to the scriptures and the and the gospel witness, then we're all on the same team, guys. Um, even if they have differences from the way we work, so he says, "Don't stop this guy from working. He's building the kingdom, just as you are." Now we come to verse 51 and I want to skip verse 51 for just a second. We'll come back to verse 51 in a second because I think that's that, that's that passage that sort of, um, maybe focuses our attention on, on the theme of this passage in a unique way. But I want to go on to verse 52 to see this third encounter and this third principle that we see, uh, about greatness in the kingdom. And so verse 52 says, and he sent messengers on ahead of him and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and he went on to another village. 
so the last last section is sort of a twin of the last one, sort of the the other side of the coin. In the last one, we saw that someone is doing work and I'm and having success there, but but I, they're not part of my group and I'm not getting credit for that. Um, this is sort of the opposite, the reserve reverse side of that coin, because when they pass through Samaria, they are not met with with the respect and hospitality that they feel they are entitled to. Instead, they are receiving insult, right? They are receiving rejection, and they don't think they deserve that. They don't think they're worthy of that. Essentially, there's this attitude of saying sort of, well, how dare you treat us like that, right? Don't you know who we are? Don't you know whose side we are on, Samaritans? There's a certain amount of dishonor that has been shown, and, and the disciples are mad about that. They're basically saying, man, that demands vindication. It, it demands justice, at least, and in fact, with with the disciples' own words, it seems like they're more concerned with vengeance when it comes to uh, this this uh, disrespect that they have been shown. These people who are against us need to be put in their place, and so they ask uh, Jesus, do you, "Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Do you want divine judgment on these people who have been so presumptuous as to reject us?" Now, the first thing is we have to acknowledge, is Jesus worthy of honor, right? Should he have been received in a different way? You bet he should. There's there's no question about that. And yet, Jesus doesn't seem to be as concerned about his own honor. Um, he rebukes the disciples, in fact, for their attitude. And we're not given an exact explanation uh, in this text why uh, their their words were worthy of rebuke, but but given the other two passages, it's not hard for us to deduce, right? The, the problem is, is if our pride and our self importance makes us unable to or in, to endure rejection, to and to do that without retaliating when we are rejected, then man, it is going to be really hard, maybe impossible, to serve. Uh, what the last section we looked at called this twisted and, and faithless generation. There's no way we're going to be able to minister to people if we are not willing to be rejected and, and receive that uh, rejection in a way where we can, can just brush it off and move on um, to the next town, move on to the next person, move on to the next people uh, group. We have to be um, not so concerned about our own honor and our own dignity. And instead, uh, preach the gospel message, um, show people Jesus, and then let the chips fall where they may. So that's kind of the third principle. But but again, I want to go back to verse 51 because I think there's this, this wording that draws our attention to something that makes this whole passage makes sense just a little bit more, okay? And so in verse 51, it says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, for his going up, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now notice something. That sentence in itself is a little bit of an interruption in the flow of the passage. So we have these three passages, and in each one, right, the disciples encounter somebody, an outsider. They react to that outsider in a certain way, and then Jesus sort of, says, no, your attitude should be something um, different, all right? But then this one line kind of sticks out in that 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 um, uh, that pattern. Uh, verse 51 kind of stands out and sort of doesn't fit, but I think it's because it's drawing attention to us, not only with what's happening, but but specifically with the wording. Notice what he says. Jesus has been talking um, about 
being rejected over the last few sections, chapter 8 and chapter 9. He's been talking about the fact that he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. But then the language in this passage changes a little bit. He is going up to Jerusalem, what for his ascension? Now, what is ascension referring to? What is it intended to draw our attention to? Because I think there's at least three contexts that we understand what he's talking about. When Jesus says, I am ascending to Jerusalem, what are we meant to think about in that? Well, I think three things. The first off being that the Jews always talked about when they were going to Jerusalem, go, they, they always talk about going up. To Jerusalem. They always talk about ascending to Jerusalem because, because Jerusalem is, is, is on a mountain, right? So it didn't really matter if you were coming from north or south or east or west. As the Jews go to, to festivals, um, uh, in, in, uh, for, for the Jewish faith, as they go up to Jerusalem, they're always talking about ascending to Jerusalem. Okay. So we actually see that in the Psalms. We saw that, uh, that, that, in, in the psalm we actually use as our call to worship passage today, it is what's called a psalm of ascent. And so there are these psalms in in um, the Bible, Psalm 120 through 134, that, that we call the, the going up psalms. They are the psalms of ascent. And they were the psalms that were traditionally um, sung as the, the Israelites would go up to Jerusalem for these festivals. And so uh, we're, we're drawn attention to that, that, that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, right? But the idea is that his, his, his determination, his eyes are set on going up to Jerusalem because his time has come. And so maybe that's the first thing that we, our, our attention is drawn to when we talk about his ascent. His ascent is his ascent up to Jerusalem where the, the events of Passion Week are going to take place. But then we also probably immediately think about the fact that where is Jesus going to ascend? Well, he is going up to be, to ascend the cross. And so we see that idea throughout um, the gospels in John chapter three, just before the famous John three sixteen passages, Jesus says these words, no one has ascended into heaven except him who has descended from heaven, the son of man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, just as Moses, you could say, ascended the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So must he be ascended. All right. Well, what is that talking about? Well, it's, it's referencing that, that, uh, that, that place in the scriptures where, uh, God had sent a, a judgment, a curse on, on the Israelites and they had been, uh, these serpents had come out and they were biting people and, and people were being poisoned and dying. Um, and then God made a way for them to be healed for that. And, and the way that, that, that happened was that Moses created a, a bronze serpent and he attached it to a pole and, and he lifted that bronze serpent up on this pole and anyone who would come and see the serpent would, would be healed. And, and the new Testament then draws the connection there and says, just as Moses lifted the serpent up and everyone who looked upon it was saved. So the son of man must be lifted up, lifted up this time on the cross and, and, and anyone who looks to him on the cross will be saved. And so the, again, our, our minds are, are, drawn to this idea of, of Jesus ascending the cross. And then a third thing is that, that when we talk about when Jesus says, I'm going up to Jerusalem to, to, for his ascension, we know that that is also about him ascending to heaven, 
And so interesting, Luke is the only one of the gospel writers who talks to us about Jesus' ascension into heaven. He, he first mentions it in the last chapter of his gospel, Luke chapter 24, where it says, while he was blessing them, he part, uh, departed from them and was carried up into heaven. And so he mentions it in Luke chapter 24. Then he also mentions it again in Acts chapter one. So what we find is that ascension is an import, is, is important to Luke. And we'll return to, to Luke kind of drawing attention to that, that concept of ascension, um, later on in his gospel. But here's what we notice of these three ways. Jesus is ascending to his calling at Jerusalem. He's ascending the cross and he's ascending into heaven. Uh, the disciples are thinking about their own ascension. Again, I think that's why the, the key with this word being used in, in the middle of this passage, the disciples are thinking about their own ascension, right? They're thinking about their ascension to the right hand of Jesus. They're thinking about their ascension in terms of greatness in, in leadership and, and primacy in the kingdom. They want to be great. And as we said earlier, greatness is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but the, the key that Jesus is showing us is that greatness looks very different in the kingdom. And in fact, ascension looks very different in the kingdom. And so what I think is, as our attention is drawn to this concept of Jesus ascending and the, the, the different ways in which Jesus is, is ascending, it actually becomes a model for our own ascension. So think about it. First, just like Jesus is has his eyes focused on Jerusalem, focused on his destiny, focused on the thing that he has been called to and he has come to earth for, the events that take place in Jerusalem, we embrace our calling as well. Just as Jesus' eyes are set on Jerusalem, our eyes are set on Jesus. And so we follow him. In another place in the Gospels, we, we read the fact that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so in the same way that Jesus is focused on his calling and destiny, we are focused on our calling and destiny. We are focused on G Jesus, whereas Jesus is focused on Jerusalem. We keep our eyes on him. Then we also ascend, just as Jesus ascended to the cross, we ascend to the cross. We take up our crosses daily, is what Jesus told us just a, just a few sections back. Not in the ultimate way that, that Jesus has had, uh, not in the way that, that makes a payment for sin, not in a way that, that ultimately, uh, is the means by which we are, are justified and, and made right with God. But, but we also take up our crosses and follow Jesus. We've already talked about that just a few weeks ago, right? We embrace the cost and the sacrifice that comes along with the calling, which comes along with discipleship, with, which comes along with following Jesus. We embrace the difficulty, the humility, the burden, the deprivation, even if the case is persecution, even death. And so we follow the pattern that Jesus has. We ascend to our own cross, and that is the cross of following Jesus Christ. And finally, we too ascend to the Father. One day we receive our reward to be with Christ forever, and to be, to share in, in, in his, his glory in, in heaven and, and eventually in the new heaven and the new earth. 
All right. But we have to remember that those things come in that order. See, the disciples want their, their ascension to start sort of with the beginning part. Right. This, the idea of saying we want to ascend to, to glory from the beginning. But the, the problem is, is the disciples have greatness all misunderstood. They just don't understand that the kingdom has been ups, set upside down, which we've talked about all through the gospel of Luke. As followers of Jesus, we ascend by first descending. We climb up by stepping down. We are exalted by first being brought low because we follow the pattern that Jesus has set for us. And so is there, is there a, 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 um, time when, when there will be glory and, and a exaltation? There is, but those things don't come first. First comes embracing, um, the calling that we have in Jesus Christ. Then comes the, the difficulty and the sacrifice that comes along with that. And then comes that exaltation. So next week is actually the beginning and I'll, and I'll kind of close with the, this, this thing. This the, next week is, is the beginning of Lent and Lent is leading us to, to, to the, to Easter. Um, and one of the great Easter hymns, uh, in, in the Western, uh, evangelical Christian tradition is, is the song Christ the Lord is risen today. It's by Charles Wesley, who was one of the great hymnists of, of, uh, really of church history and certainly of, of Western church history. And so he has a hymn that we've probably all sung at Easter called Christ the Lord is risen today. And one of the, the last verses of that song, um, has the exact sentiment that we are talking about here. And so if you remember, the line goes like this. Soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. And that's the exact picture that we see in this passage. Jesus has modeled for us what kingdom greatness looks like kingdom ascension looks like, but it doesn't look like the world. And we follow Jesus examples. We follow our exalted head. We are made like him. And just as the same way that he rose, we rise first, the cross, then the grave and then the skies. Let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer.